Hi, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and on this podcast, we just sit down and talk about times when the Scriptures came to life for us or when they became more real, because we believe that there's a, a great power in the Scriptures, and the more real they become to you, the more you can apply them to your life, and the more you'll be drawn into them to to see you through those hard times in life. And so we're just going to talk about times the Scriptures became real to us. I'm so excited. For our guest today, I'm here with uh, Andrew Skinner, uh, who is, uh, uh, I feel, a dear friend of mine. Um, he has been the department chair of the Ancient Scripture Department, the, the department that I'm in. He uh, was the dean of religious education. He became the director of uh, the Foundation of Ancient Research and Mormon Studies and oversaw its transition into becoming uh, the Maxwell Institute for Religious Studies. Um, uh, but more than that, he is just a fantastic guy. I've been uh, privileged to uh, teach at the Jerusalem Center with uh, with Brother Skinner, and uh, I had looked up to him even before I was hired. And uh, he's a prodigious writer and a, a fantastic speaker, and and I looked up to those things and knew he was good. But you don't really learn how good someone is until you're with them in the Holy Land, and they start pointing out, uh, you know, you thought you knew some things and they point out a thousand things you didn't know. And uh, and you also feel of their testimony and the, the way they teach and, and uh, love students. And uh, I can't give a more ringing endorsement than I would give for Brother Skinner. So welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, Dr. Mielstein, thank you very, very much for that uh, laudatory introduction. It's almost as though my mother wrote it. I appreciate uh, what you said. Uh, obviously. Uh, you, you need to divide that uh, by twenty, and uh, as you as as we will discover together. Your your wife told me what to say. But, uh, I'm just <laughs> anyway. He does have a wonderful wife as well. Yeah, uh, I everybody uh, spares no time or expense to remind me I'm married miles above me. So we now now that we know that we can uh, talk a little bit about the scriptures. Um, as we're coming up on um, a new curriculum year, uh, which is the Old Testament, uh, my thoughts, as I'm sure everybody else's thoughts, turn to uh, the, the things in the scriptures that really matter most. And, uh, and I always begin my thoughts about the Old Testament with uh, the Pearl of Great Price, the book of Moses and the book of Abraham. And like you and like so many others, I have read the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, many, many times. But uh, it's only upon mature reflection that I have understood how my experiences uh, in the lands where these events took place has ministered to my understanding and my appreciation of the sacred word. And uh, uh, like you, I have a love for uh, ancient Egypt as well as uh, the Holy Lands, and I include in that not only uh, the modern state of Israel, but uh, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, yeah. the kingdom of Syria, uh, Egypt, uh, Turkey, and, and uh, others, Lebanon. And, uh, and so I began to think about uh, what being, uh, for example, in the land of Egypt has, has taught me about uh, my love of the scriptures and my understanding of the scriptures. And one of the very first events I think that we encounter in Moses chapter one is the story of Moses, Moses's encounter with God. Yes. We all know that Moses was the great prophet, the great lawgiver, the great deliverer, who was 
raised up by God, but uh, was raised in Pharaoh's court. And I guess if there is ever a, a, a scriptural personage that that is a true forerunner, uh, models the life of the true uh, lawgiver, the true deliverer, Jesus Christ, it would have to be Moses. He's revered in Jewish tradition, uh, one of the greatest of the prophets there, uh, as well as uh, as in Islam. And, of course, Latter-day Saints have a towering feeling for Moses. So, yeah, and I, I think you're right that his life is lived in a way that, that symbolizes or, or helps us recognize and points towards the Savior. I, thank you. Yeah, I, that's that's the way that I truly feel. He, he really is someone who points us to uh, the life uh, and ministry of Jesus Christ and was a, a true symbol of the coming of Jesus. Yes. I guess the, the point that I would make uh, today is that being raised in Pharaoh's court, as the scriptures tell us, Moses rubbed shoulders with Pharaoh and the Pharaonic nobles that lived and served in Pharaoh's court. Uh, Pharaoh, as you have pointed out many times in your discussions, Pharaoh was a living God on earth. That's the way he was viewed uh, by his people and other uh, nations that surrounded Egypt. Uh, Every Pharaoh was um, uh, Horus, who was the son of Osiris. That is to say, he was the embodiment of deity. He was the living God on earth. And so this is part of the environment in which Moses was raised um, before uh, he was called officially by the Lord to be Israel's uh, messenger and deliverer. And, uh, and living uh, among uh, God and gods in ancient Egypt, their uh, worldview, he had seen amazing things. He had witnessed uh, the great building projects of the pharaohs. He was, uh, I think, not easily impressed uh, by other cultures precisely because he had seen the magnificence of ancient Egypt. Uh, I think you would agree. If you don't, that's fine. But I think you might agree that uh, ancient Egypt, in in all three of its uh, kingdom periods, old, middle, and new kingdom, was one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world yeah. during that time. Uh, ever, right? I mean, yeah, probably ever. China is the only culture that rivals it for both longevity and uh, uh, amazing uh, cultural achievements. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it took a lot to impress Moses because he had lived with a god and he was raised in the culture where uh, the ancient Egyptians had this obsession about eternal life and the point of this life was more life. And uh, we could talk about the the way that the ancient Egyptians viewed time. There was this secular time in which we lived, and then there was a, you know, a, almost another uh, time scheme. And the object was to get to the other time scheme where you could live not only with the gods but like the gods. Yeah. And, and there are everybody has heard of the different gods that make up the Egyptian pantheon. And I had known that. But there is, uh, there are a couple of uh, 
of cultural markers uh, that uh, really helped me to appreciate a statement by the prophet Moses. One, of course, is the Great Pyramids. You know, the three Great Pyramids on the Giza Plateau and uh, father, son, and grandson. Uh, and these, uh, this, these pyramids were exquisitely constructed uh, with, uh, with uh, amazing engineering yes. ability. Massive, massive uh, uh, construction effort. Uh, the Great Pyramid, for example, the biggest one, Khufu. Khufu was uh, what some uh, two and a half million stones yeah. of limestone or, or granite, and put together uh, in a way that it still is with us. One of the seven wonders of the world that's still around. Uh, Moses saw that, and depending on. How you date Moses? I I'm one that believes the evidence, all of the historical and archaeological evidence put together, um, augurs for a later date, uh, somewhere uh, in uh, somewhere between 1280 and 1250. Somewhere in I think that's a that's a good 1280 yeah. I think that's a good ballpark figure. So yeah. as long as long as you agree with me, I'm I feel really good now. Um, but. Uh, but Moses, uh, you know, the pyramids were, were already uh, 800 years old or more than that, a thousand years old, more than a thousand years old when Moses is on the scene. Yeah, they are, are more ancient history than anything in the U.S. is, uh, unless we go to Anasazi culture, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're that old already for Moses. You can put yourself in Moses' place. The great pyramids are already more than a thousand years old. I mean, you make the good point. In America, if we come across a building that's 200 years old, wow, we think this really doing it. It's nothing compared to that. But there's another building project that was undertaken by Pharaoh Seti I and probably completed or the finishing touches put on it by the famous Ramses II, who I think is a good candidate for the Exodus. Yeah, but, uh, and I would agree with you there. We, we, we really don't know, but I think you're right. The evidence leads towards like City the First maybe being the, the father that Moses, yeah. uh, and that's how it's portrayed in many of the movies because of that same idea. But but sure. But I think Moses was probably familiar with Seti and Ramses. And and so uh, we, we go a, a few hundred miles south of Cairo to the, the modern town of Luxor. Yeah. And, and at Luxor, we find the largest uh, ancient temple, the, the largest temple of the ancient world at the time, uh, called the Temple of Karnak, built by Seti I and, and finished by Ramses II, with additions by other pharaohs. By yeah, and, and there were parts that were built before that, but the, the, big, yeah. the, the big impressive part was built by by them. And so yeah. we come to uh, the famous hypostyle hall. Yeah. And, and to imagine the hypostyle hall, you have to uh, sort of reconstruct in your mind how big an acre of ground is. Well, imagine a room that's as big as an acre. And holding up the roof of this room are 134 stone columns. Uh, barrel, construction, barrel construction, which means you know segments there are segments that rise to a feet of twenty uh, to a height of twenty meters. Yeah. Each of these hundred and thirty-four columns of the hypostyle hall that holds up the roof to this one-acre room 
is uh, it is uh, 20 meters high and uh, so thick that it takes, what, I don't know, 10, 12, maybe even more people who are touching hand-to-hand, circumvolating uh, the, or going around each one of these 134 hypostyles. Yeah, we, we've done that together with students, and I've had it, we take, depending on the size of the students, up to 15 people, but usually somewhere around 12 or something where you just have your arms stretched out as wide as you can go, and it takes that many of you to get around the base of this column. Thank, thank you for making that point, because what we're saying is this is a magnificent piece of construction. It is jaw-dropping. The engineering behind it, the, the carvings in each one of these 134 pillars that hold up the roof of the Hypostyle Hall uh, recount the historical matters in Egyptian history. They talk about politics. They talk about religious beliefs, all carved in and hieroglyphs, beautiful carvings, beautiful colors, and and the fact that some of the colors have still been preserved uh, to 2021 A.D. is a testament to the magnificence of, of Egyptian culture. Yeah, so, and, and maybe I'll just—I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't please. want to beat the, uh, a dead horse here, but I'll—I'll I'll just say that with both the, the pyramids, but surprisingly, even more so with that hypostyle hall in Karnak. There are two sites where I've been a lot of times, and it doesn't matter how many times I go. Every time I go, I say, oh, I forgot how amazing this is. It it makes your jaw drop. Yeah. It's just flabbergasting every single time. Yes. So here's, so here's the point, the, the, I guess, uh, an aha moment for me, standing in this hypo-style hall. And, and uh, like you, uh, I've been to Egypt many, many times. I think the last count was... 21 or 22 you've been probably more somewhere around, around that number yeah, yeah but, uh, but so we we we've been around the block in in luxor so to speak been around the the hypostyle hall so to speak and uh, standing in that hypostyle hall uh and looking at its magnificence it finally dawned on me that it's quite likely that moses the great prophet stood in this hypostyle hall or certainly knew about it, knew about its magnificence. And how does he react when he has his encounter with God versus the magnificence he's seen in Egyptian culture? And if I may, I'd just like to read a couple of verses to, to make my point. So this is Moses chapter 1, Pearl of Great Prize, uh, verse 1. The words of God, which he spake unto Moses, at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain. That's verse 1 now, switching over to verse 8. And it came to pass that Moses looked and beheld the world upon which he was created, and Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof, and all the children of men which are and which were created. Of the same he greatly marveled and wondered. And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, that his glory was not upon Moses, and Moses was left unto himself. And as he was left unto himself, he fell unto the earth. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto a man. And he said unto himself, and this is the punchline. Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, 
which thing I never had supposed. And, uh, and the thought just uh, came to me in such an overpowering way. Of course, Moses had never conceived of the greatness of the true and living God because uh, all of the magnificent things that he had been raised around and the, the, uh, the idea of, of living with the gods and among the gods and living with a living God, Horus. And now he has an encounter with the true and living God and it drives him to the earth. It drives him to the ground. He falls in his and he says to himself, wow, I had supposed that this is the apex, you know, of human experience. This is the apex of culture. This is the apex of religious experience. And now I know that what the, what the Egyptians have created, what human beings have created is nothing compared to the greatness and glory of God. And, and at the same time, the thought came to me, I understand that now better. I, it's, it's an amazing thought. On the other hand, even though man is nothing without the true and living God, with the true and living God, man is everything, because that is the purpose of mortality, is for us to be able to become like God. So the Egyptians were not wrong. The, the purpose of this life is more life, eternal life, and then uh, eventually to become like the gods. But the greatness of the true and living God is so extraordinarily stunning, so great that nothing can compare with it. And that's the experience that Moses had. And for a second, that's the experience that I had standing in the hypostyle hall uh, at the Karnak Temple. Uh, thank you for that. I feel the same way. Maybe I can just add to it even a little bit and, and uh, maybe even get your uh, thoughts on one element of that. But I, I had the same, I've had the same experience. Uh, and I can remember when it first hit me, and I think it was probably my first time in that hypostyle hall. And I was looking up and, uh, and uh, getting a sore neck from trying to look at the yeah. height of this and, and how many things there were to look at. And, um, and thinking to myself, the first thought I had was, you know, our our ability to build today doesn't have anything on this. I don't. We have some really cool structures in uh, the modern world. I don't think there's anything that's quite as cool as this, actually. And I was thinking, you know, we think we're that great, but we're really not all that wonderful. And then this verse came to my mind, and I thought, you know, uh, I was starting to think, uh, well, you know, modern uh, uh, abilities really are something. And then I started to think, well, maybe not. They could do this and in 1250 BC, but then I thought, well, it's nothing compared to God. I had a similar experience. There's a, a place down um, in, in very far south, outside of actually what would have been thought of as Egypt proper uh, in Moses' day, but they would have still considered it part of, the, of Egypt because they'd conquered it. It's a place yeah. called Abu Simbel. Um, and I know you know Abu Simbel. Just, yeah. I'm just thinking of Abu Simbel. Yeah, and it's a place where uh, it's right on the River Nile, <laughs> and they've carved into the mountainside a temple with huge statues of, of uh, Ramses. You know, I should know how tall they are, but my guess would be that they're around seven or eight stories tall, these statues that have been carved in yeah. the mountainside. I love Petra, where they've also carved things into the mountainside, but Petra's got nothing uh, on, on, on uh, yeah. what he yeah. did at Abu Simbel. And it's clear that it was designed so that as people came from Africa and floated into Egypt, this was what kind of became the, the entry into Egypt. And it was designed to impress. 
It was designed so that if you were coming to attack or to trade or whatever you were coming to do, as you got to that point in the river, you looked up and you said, who am I dealing with? What yeah. kind of a place am I coming to that can do this? This is the ancient welcome center. Yeah. They want to wow you, yeah. no matter what your, as you point out, no matter what your objective is in entering Egypt, you're going to be wowed yeah. by this. Yeah. And, 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 and this is exciting because I remember, too, uh, the first time at Abu Simbel um, entering uh, one of the, uh, the temples at Abu Simbel uh, and seeing uh, female figures associating with the gods yeah. and realizing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scriptures teach that this isn't just a male objective. This is both male and female. And it brought back a verse in Abraham. It's creation account, Abraham chapter four, where Abraham sees that the gods are of two genders, male and female, that they are plural. Right. In the creation. Yeah. And that man is man in the generic sense is fashioned after male and female deities in, in our premortal existence. So I, that's, I, I appreciate that because it brings back to me a flood of memories being an Abu symbol as well. In fact, so important, I think, to our modern world that uh, this was uh, an amazing construction project when they were building the dam. Yeah, the, the Aswan High Dam. Aswan High yeah. Dam. And so they, uh, so they was carved up these things in, into sections and, and resituated them. Yeah, it was going to flood where, where it originally yeah. was. So they had to do what you were saying. Right. Sorry, I yeah. interrupted. But just that's why they had no, to no. keep going. I remember in elementary school, I think it was in the first grade, uh, reading my weekly reader about this very project that had been completed. And I thought, wow, they, they're going, they, they dismantle something this big and then they move it up high. How important is this? Well, it's not just important, it's magnificent. All of that that we've been talking about is to say that this aha experience, I think, is kind of a foreshadowing that each of us, for, for each of us, that we can have the same kind of experience in our personal lives. We, we may not see deity. In fact, I, most of us won't. Uh, but we can have the Holy Ghost come and testify to us that the magnificence of God is greater than anything we can imagine. Yes, yes. And I'll just add a, a, a little on there that, um, that, like you, I think, Moses, I find it hard to believe he didn't see Karnak, whether he was in the hypostyle right. hall or not, because only certain priests could get there, and whether he was uh, of that level, I don't know, but I would guess so. But, but with Abu Simbel, just because we have that little line that tells us that uh, Moses had an Ethiopian wife, right. uh, which is from just south of where Abu Simbel is, and my guess would be that that was a political marriage. Right, that the yeah. Pharaoh had uh, all the children associated with his family marrying for political alliances, so it's quite likely that he he'd done that for uh, a political marriage, which means he'd probably been to Ethiopia. So I can picture Moses having sailed, sailed past Abu Simbel. Uh, so that's one that I know he he sees and and then has that reaction that you talked about. That now I know that that man is nothing. But as as you said, I think there's an interesting follow up to that. Um, like you said, that that's not the end of the story, right? So it's interesting that Moses has this reaction that now I know that man is nothing, but but God just before that has told him, he said, Moses, my son, I have a work for thee, right? So yeah. 
And this is just after he's told Moses some things that would blow his mind. And, uh, you know, his words have no end and so on and so on. But uh, and so Moses is humbled, but he's also ennobled because as he realizes the greatness of the difference between God and himself, at the same time, he's it's made very clear there's a parent child relationship. And inherent in that is the idea children can become something like their parents and and also that God knows him and has a work for him and so on. And you see the effect of that after Moses is passed out on the ground and says, now I know that man is nothing. Then Satan comes and tries to tempt him. And the thing that gets Moses through is two things. He, he says, I've seen God's glory and I'm seeing you and it doesn't compare. And, and then Satan calls him son of man. And Moses says, I'm a son of God. He, he not only said, God only, not, not only tells Moses he's the son of God, but he says in pointed terms, you are in the similitude, the perfect likeness of the Messiah who comes, yeah. uh, Jesus Christ. Well, you, I, I suspect you can't be told something like that and then have an experience with Lucifer or Satan, as you're talking about, and not see the huge contrast, which... which I, I love I love that the 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 next part of the story the rest of the story uh, yeah. as uh, one commentator I, I hope, used to yeah, say that's right the rest of the story I hope that that's the the reaction that we all have that we will have times where we are overwhelmed with the difference between God and ourselves and 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 what we are trying to be we're trying to be godlike or Christlike yeah. Yeah. in ourselves but I hope that we will have the second part of that as well where it en- enables ennobles us and enables us knowing our relationship with God, knowing our potential, knowing that he knows us and has something for us, that that will enable us not only to get past that feeling of being overwhelmed, but everything that Satan in the world throws at us. So hopefully it's, if we get just the humbling part, we've got a problem. If we get just the ennobling part, we've got a problem. But if we get both of them, then we've got the balance we need uh, to draw on the power of God, as Moses does in his conflict with Satan. He draws on the power of God and, and his son, Jesus Christ, and it can get us through. Yeah, Carrie, it also strikes me that there's another component to this that has been very helpful to me, and that is that uh, Lucifer is the great aper, that he's the great impersonator. Yeah. Uh, he is the great counterfeiter, and he he uh, shows his hand uh, to a man who has just had an encounter with the true and living God, and that made all the difference yeah. in the world to Moses. But uh, he, he kind of, uh, the adversary kind of ruined his own case, you know, by appearing so quickly yeah. and trying to counterfeit the Moses' encounter with the true and living God. And I have uh, seen this in my own life and in the lives of my children and grandchildren uh, several times that uh, where righteousness is made apparent in our lives, you can bet your bottom dollar that soon after Lucifer's counterfeit will be made manifest to try to dissuade you, to try to derail uh, your, your trajectory uh, to, uh, to, to true sacred things. And, and I, this has been such an important lesson to me. When great righteousness is manifest in your life or great goodness or goodness, no matter you know the, the degree, uh, you can bet that there will be Lucifer showing up. Uh, and uh, and we see this even in the New Testament with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
uh, as he is in the wilderness to be with his father, yes. who also shows up. Well, it's Lucifer trying to counterfeit that experience. And uh, I, I just, in my personal study, I just got done reading um, the uh, accounts, the Gospels of uh, Jesus's arrest, mm. trial, and crucifixion. And that part where Pontius Pilate says, uh, oh, by the way, Pilate, I think, really is trying to get Jesus exonerated. He, you know, his wife, Pilate's wife has been bugging him, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. I've had a dream about this. And, you know, and he Pontius is Pilate, the son of God. And, yeah. yeah and, 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 you know, he's he's had it up to here with with everybody ragging on him and nagging him and just, you yeah. know. Doing this and and then uh, so he's he I think he really is trying to get Jesus off the yeah, hook, so to speak. And so what happens? He says, "Oh, by the way, uh, it's a custom at Passover to release a prisoner." And I think he honestly believes that uh, if he puts forward a notorious bad guy, I mean this this he is guilty of the big three in Roman culture. He's guilty of sedition. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of robbery. It's, all those yeah. things are listed in the text. And I think Pilate really thinks that if we can yeah, present such, such an obvious, obvious yeah. choice, <laughs> excuse me, that uh, that the crowd will will let Jesus. Yeah, there's go. no way that they would choose to let that guy go, and, and he's already convicted. Yeah. So, yeah, naturally they, they'll uh, use judgment and and cause Jesus Christ to be released. But it's interesting to me that the name of the prisoner that's uh, that's Placed alongside Jesus, his name is Bar Abbas, son of the father yeah. or son of a yeah. father in Aramaic. And there are textual variants that go all the way back to the second century uh, manuscripts that apparently uh, were quite common in that era that tell us that the first name of Bar Abbas was Jesus. So we have Jesus, Bar Abbas, placed alongside Jesus, the true son of the father. Right. And who do they choose? They choose to release Bar Abbas. But the point for me is, yes, there are counterfeits that are always going to be placed in front of us. And we honestly need to have the spiritual power, the spiritual reserve to know, to divide rightly, to judge correctly, which is the counterfeit. And I think that's one of the offshoots of uh, President Nelson's comment in 2018, that it's not going to be possible to survive spiritually. Right. Unless you have that reservoir, that wellspring of righteousness, so that you can rightly divide what's true and what's false. Yeah, yeah. and I, 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 I probably we can't have a more important topic. I would just plead with anyone listening, or if you know someone that that needs to hear this, to that, to remember that that when you are having those those times of darkness, right, the Satan counterfeit coming to to talk to you, that you need to do something to give yourself the opportunity to feel the glory of God. And when you can con contrast those, your choice will be easy. But too often people don't make sure that they have the opportunity then to, to re-invite the glory of God into their lives, just the spirit in any way, so that they contrast the peace with the turmoil uh, and so on. And, and that's a tragedy. Uh, I, I love that point. Uh, and in fact, uh, that takes me to, uh, to, the, to the, the sad, uh, understanding that uh, that there are our brothers and sisters who sometimes uh, choose to move away from uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and I've heard the phrase 
uh, uttered, well, uh, they know so much. The challenge is that they don't know enough. As, and that's the point I think that you were making. You, you, you need to follow through and have, uh, give yourself an opportunity to feel God's glory in your life. It's not that if people don't leave the church because they know too much. People leave the church because they don't know yes. enough. And, and there are uh, examples of that uh, even in, in the modern world. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but, uh, you know, I think of, uh, of Billy Graham, the, the great mm. Christian preacher mm-hmm. of the 20th century. And everybody's heard of Billy Graham, but what they may not know is that early on, Billy Graham had a preaching partner, and uh, this preaching partner um, was uh, judged by many people to be an even greater preacher. I didn't know that. Than, than Billy Graham. The tragedy is that this uh, close, close, dear friend, maybe best friend of Billy Graham, went to university and began uh, scientific studies. And uh, at least according to some reports, this is the thing that took him away mm. from the gospel. And at the very end, uh, he was interviewed. Uh, he was in his 80s and was uh, dying. And the the interviewer said, uh, you still have feelings for Jesus Christ. And at that point, this man teared up and he said, uh, he is the greatest human being that's ever lived. And and then in, in a moment of, of true revelation, he says, and I miss him. I miss him. <laughs> so none of us can, can let ourselves get into the position where we, we let things that don't matter the most take us away from things that do matter the most. Ah, very good. Good. Well, thank you. Uh, are there some other times that uh, you can think of that have really uh, made the, the scriptures come to life for you? Well, you know, we're, we started out in ancient Egypt, and, and that, uh, that sparked a, a memory uh, that you've undoubtedly had. And that concerns an artifact that's housed in. Well, was housed in the uh, old Cairo Museum, and they've uh, been building the new one for seems like decades yeah. now. And and I suspect that this will be moved there. And it, this is called the Merenpetah Stila, or the or the uh, Merneptah Stila, as some people call it. And a Stila, uh, as most people know, is a big block of rock uh, that's shaped that allows carvings to describe events that have gone on in the reign of a certain king, you know, and, and these were set up in the time of uh, Hammurabi, king of Babylon. And, well, this is the Merneptah, or Merenpetah, is the 13th son of Ramses II. Ramses had outlived the other other 12. He, he I think he has the second longest reign yeah. in Egyptian history. Yeah, he, he reigned for a very long time and outlived... Uh, <laughs> More than half of his descendants, we yeah. think. Yeah, so, yeah. two hundred descendants or whatever, yeah. whatever the figure so, is. So anyway, Merenptah uh, uh, begins to reign at the death of his father Ramses II, or around, um, I guess, twelve thirteen somewhere in there, twelve thirteen BC. And Merenptah, you know, he he wants to show that he is a guy in the mold of his father, Ramses II, one of the greatest and most famous. Of the pharaoh, so he goes on military expeditions, and then he comes back and he has garb, 
on this um, big, tall chunk of raw uh, a report of some of his exploits. And most of it uh, is intended to talk about his conquest of the Libyans, but it also describes a foray into ancient Canaan. And in the last lines of this, of this stela, Really, it's it's a it's a propaganda sheet yeah. is what it yeah. is. You know, I'm look how great I am. But in the last lines of this Merkatostila, we have uh, the only Egyptian mention, and by the way, the earliest historical mention of the name of Israel. Yes. And this Merkatostila, everybody knows about the Merkatostila. Not only helps to date, I think, the time of the Exodus, which is sometimes overlooked, but it confirms that there was a people known as Israel living in the land of Canaan. And so uh, I, I, in graduate school, like probably you did, had friends who would say, well, you know, the Old Testament's really a book of fairy tales and most of this didn't happen. No, there are artifacts that tell us that things, things described in the biblical text really did happen. And and so the Merenpetastila was... It is for me one of those, and I had another aha moment standing in front of the Merkatostila. I don't think I was with you, but uh, but the the thought hit me powerfully. This is important because it's an a non biblical or an extra biblical attestation of the reality of the people in, of Israel living in Israel around the year twelve oh five or twelve oh eight BC. Yeah, uh, you're right, and it's uh, it is. I mean, this is almost a pun, but it's not. It's a it's a touchstone with yeah, exactly. the reality of the people that were there, and 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 you're right in in terms of dating as well. So it's interesting because you can piece together kind of the geography as he he's given you a travel log or a conquer log, if you whatever yeah. you'd like to call it. But uh, and so it's clear that as he's talking about this group Israel, that it's in the area where we would expect them to be. And there are different little symbols in the Egyptian language that let you know kind of the category of the word before it, right? So, yeah. uh, and and the category that they get is not the uh, one that is used for most of the people that he's talking about, which is one that says that they're in a city or they're an established people. Yeah, it's it's a it's a geographical area for yeah. that determinative. Yeah, yeah. Right. But this one is it's a group of people, and, yeah. and so that that indicates they're not in uh, cities, they're not in a, a specific you know uh, established civilized geographic area which is probably exactly what you would think of uh as they're arriving to the promised land before they finish the conquest which again if they left under ramses uh then by the time you get to and then they're in the wilderness for around 40 years by the time you get to maranepta that's exactly i mean it's it's the perfect description for the people in the right place the right kind of geographic condition everything it just it fits perfectly uh it's too much to be coincidence in my mind yeah, uh, Marin Patah does not have an axe to grind. He no. he is not. Uh, he doesn't have in mind proving the existence of Israel. He he has in mind uh, proving his own greatness, and he's saying, "Look, I even went up to Canaan, conquered these people, not the land, as as in other uh, descriptions of his conquest, fought battles with those people, but the people." themselves. And so uh, I, I think that, uh, that those are, uh, as you uh, so rightly and cleverly put it, uh, touchstones. Um, 
I know our time is limited, but well, we, we can talk lots. One of the interesting things about uh, about uh, these discussions is they trigger so many memories, and and uh, one of them uh, in the Book of Abraham has to do with the, the sacred uh, covenants and the, the sacred rituals that we find uh, enacted in our temples. Mm. Uh, and I am so grateful for uh, for the understanding of how important temples were in ancient times, but also how important they are today. Uh, it, the, the continuity of just the simple existence of temples in ancient times and now again in modern times with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I think uh, is... And a very important, uh, not proof, but but it's an important help in understanding that Joseph Smith didn't make this stuff yeah. up. And, uh, and one of those uh, comments in in the Book of Abraham, I think, has to do with this idea of eternal life, the ancient Egyptian obsession uh, with eternal life, and and how they themselves had rituals that in some ways uh, parallel some of the concepts and the rituals that uh, that we are familiar with yeah. and these have to these have to be from a divine source through the prophet Joseph Smith but in ancient times uh, we understand uh, how the ancient Egyptians came to uh, understand these things uh, one of the commonest that's a word it is now one of the <laughs> One of the most common hieroglyphs in ancient Egypt is the Ankh, mm-hmm. which, as you more than better than anybody knows, is the is the word for life, yeah. or uh, as sometimes it's translated, uh, eternal life, ongoing life. Mm-hmm. Another common symbol, uh, and I'm remembering this from. Uh, a lower register of symbols on the wall of the Edfu Temple, just uh, even further south than Luxor, uh, has uh, another common symbol called the Wasp Scepter. Mm-hmm. And they're put together, the Ankh, meaning eternal life, and the Wasp Scepter. And so you which, which look at power and rulership and so on. Power and authority. Yeah, authority. That's and good, so power and authority. Yeah. Power and authority. So you look at this register of this... Uh, this uh, long line of symbol, uh, Ankh, Was, Ankh, Was, Ankh, Was, yeah. power and authority forever, power and authority forever, or power and authority for eternal life, however yeah. you want to yeah. translate. Or even living Ankh. power and authority. Even, yeah. Living power and authority, on and on and on, right? So this Egyptian obsession, we could call it, with eternal life. Uh, and they had their own set of rituals by which a, a person, uh, in the, I guess, in the old kingdom, we'd have to say that it's confined to kings and high nobles uh, in, in the pharaonic courts and the pharaonic administration. But uh, uh, later on, beginning maybe even in the middle kingdom uh, of Egypt's ancient history, uh, we see something called the democratization of eternity, where more and more people have the opportunity to ascend to the realm of the gods and live with the gods and live like the gods. But there are certain things that they have to do. 
one of my favorite uh, images, Pyrus images, uh, is uh, is the weighing of the heart judgment scene. You know, where the there's candidate. an example right above your head. I've got it hanging on the wall up there. Sure. Yeah. Wow. There, it there it is. The who Nefford judgment scene. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, we, we see in this series of what would you call vignettes, they're all uh, connected to tell a complete story. But in the first one, we see the, the person who is a candidate for eternal life being led uh, into the judgment. Uh, area, the judgment hall, the judgment chamber, whatever you want to call it. And he's being led by um, the jackal-headed uh, deity. Is that right? Uh, often in that particular depiction, no, although he is earlier in the depiction. But yeah. And uh, and so uh, the candidate for eternal life uh, is, uh, is brought to um, the scales of justice and his heart is weighed against the feather of Ma'at. Ma'at, M-A apostrophe A-T mm-hmm. is the English spelling of it, is uh, the God of justice and rightness and beauty and truth yeah. and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Truth, justice, the American way. Yeah. However the you Egyptian want. way. Yeah. Yeah, Egyptian yeah. way. Yeah. So the, the goddess right. of that, yeah. yeah. And so uh, the, the candidate's heart is weighed against that judgment. And, and, if, you, uh, and if your heart weighs uh, lighter than the feather of Ma'at, then you're, you've made it, yeah. right? If not, uh, if it weighs heavier than the feather of Ma'at, then you're in big trouble because I think in some scenes, uh, the candidate is turned over to the Amit or Amut monster who has the head of a crocodile and uh, the uh, shoulders and front paws of a lion and the back end of a hippopotamus, which interestingly enough are the three largest man-eating animals <laughs> In ancient Egypt, and so you're in, in big trouble. But uh, aside from that, uh, you are then ushered into uh, the presence of, in many of them, Osiris, who's depicted with the color green. That's right? the most common one. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, uh, our 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 appreciation for the the doctrine of the judgment, I think, is confirmed, or at least we see it represented in. In ancient Egypt, and the purpose, of course, is to pass the judgment so that you can have life uh, with the gods. Um, so that's one example. But another example uh, is actually carved into the um, into the uh, outside wall of the holy of holies at the temple of Karnak, which we were just talking about and uh, there uh, again the candidate is taken and and the priests uh, pour uh, pour out the contents of vials uh, on the head of the candidate and and uh, the one that I've seen it's very hard to to make out that what what they're pouring out over the candidate's head is represented by a whole series of onks eternal yeah. life they're anointing him for eternal life and then the next scene shows him uh, receiving uh, what a new, uh, a new headdress or uh, crown, basically a crown, yeah. a crown, and uh, and uh, and then uh, we see the the individual then having an audience uh, in the case that we're talking about. It's uh, I think it's Amon Ra, I believe so, and 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 then another stunning um, 
I guess, representation that we see in um, in several different places is what's been referred to by non-LDS scholars as the sacred embrace, where you uh, you uh, hug. Essentially, I'm not quite sure the best way to describe that, but you you have an embrace with the God. Right. Let's and welcome Ra, you into the presence and the wel- status. Right? Exactly, welcome you into the presence of of the gods. And uh, and one non LDS scholar says it's clear to him, a, a German. Why not? Right, so the Germans are always involved in Egyptology. Uh, that it's clear to him that what's going on there is an exchange, a verbal exchange between the the king or the candidate, whoever it is, and the God is a verbal exchange, you know, from mouth to ear. Right. All right. So uh, seeing all of these images over the last 30 well, or 40 and, years. And maybe even before you say that, let me just add that yeah. in some of those uh, scenes, even before they get to the being having uh, the ankh poured on them, they're having um, water poured on them and, right. and also incense. They're being anointed with incense. So they're being washed and then anointed with incense, and then they can have the rest of it going along. So anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no, no. So I, that's uh, that, I appreciate that uh, that reminder. Uh, so, having seen all of these images, and uh, you know, having um, experience with Latter Day Saint temples, uh, I thought this is really an amazing correspondence. Yeah. Uh, now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the ancient Egyptians had what we today have, what we call the endowment, this rich gift that helps us to uh, to enter the presence of God. But I am saying that there is an amazing correspondence in some cases with what we see represented on the walls of tombs and temples and what we understand today. And then it dawned on me, this passage from Abraham chapter 1, and if I may, I'll just read a couple of verses. Uh, Abraham chapter 1, verse 25. Now the first government of Egypt was established by Pharaoh, the eldest son of Egyptus, the daughter of Ham, and it was after the manner of the government of Ham, which was patriarchal. Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam and also of Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. Uh, so at least my interpretation of that is that is that the Egyptians understood the nature of of these rituals that uh, would assist the individual in their quest for eternal life. They wanted them, so they imitated them. And we find representations of that uh, in the tombs and temples all up and down uh, the Nile. Uh, that was another aha moment for me as, as an historian of the ancient world uh, and also a, a teacher of ancient scripture. That, I think, collectively, uh, these aha moments collectively have uh, told me in no uncertain terms that that what we have 
received in these last days from the prophet Joseph Smith was not coincidental, was not made up, uh, you know, full-blown out of the head of Joseph Smith, but really is a restoration of the ancient order of things. And there's a, maybe I can, uh, since I... Um, since I've been thinking about these things, I've come across a statement by a former uh, apostle. Uh, most everybody will recognize the name of uh, Bruce R. McConkie. And, uh, and I'll just conclude with this, at least this, this commentary. Uh, Elder McConkie says, quote, we are, we are in the process of receiving all that God has spoken by the mouths of all his holy prophets since the world began. Only a small portion has come to us so far. We do not yet, we do not as yet, begin to know what the ancients knew. That which has come to us anew breaks the shackles of the past, opens up entirely new vistas to us. It is all Christ-centered, gospel-centered, priesthood-centered, church-centered. It lets us know that all of the ancient saints have the same gospel, the same hope in Christ, the same holy priesthood, the same celestial marriage, the same church, the same apostolic power, the same gifts of the Spirit, the same system of salvation that we have. Except for a few things relative to salvation for the dead, we have not yet received one syllable of Scripture, one syllable of Scripture, one trace of truth, one gospel verity, one saving power that was not had anciently. Uh, Abraham's comment about uh, the, the pharaonic system, uh, to me, says that, yes, um, these divine echoes of truth were picked up by ancient civilizations and uh, imitated because they knew the value uh, of of these uh, rituals and these covenants that were made in ancient times and we have them today so that's a that's a has been a great um i guess a great source of realization that uh, this is the truth yeah yeah again the, it's too much to be coincidence isn't it yeah uh, thank you so other insights. This, this, this comes from the New Testament. Uh, and uh, I guess the arbitrariness of, of my uh, discussion points is uh, reflective of my miscellaneous mind. Um, I just started thinking of, of experiences that I've had which have caused me to, to uh, appreciate uh, the the authenticity of scripture and the descriptions of events in scripture uh, this is uh, an event that occurs uh, north of the sea of galilee in an area called caesarea philippi and uh, it is sometimes referred to as peter's great confession mm -hmm. of jesus christ and it's such a beautiful area the area around caesarea philippi it it is it is absolutely gorgeous, and uh, we have really actually no record uh, of uh, Jesus uh, taking his disciples further north right. than this area 
uh, around Caesarea. Some, some people suppose perhaps he went as far north as Mount Hermon, which is a little north of there, but we, we, we don't know. That's a supposition. Yeah. What we know, that's the furthest north he, he gets. And so, and so uh, Jesus uh, takes his disciples. Uh, actually, Jesus is returning from the coastal regions of, of Tyre and Sidon up in modern-day Lebanon. Yeah, which is, I guess is further north over on the western side, but yeah. On the west coast. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, a careful reading of Matthew 15 uh, indicates that uh, Jesus went purposefully to Tyre and Sidon because there was a non-Jewish woman, a non-covenant woman, right. in need of divine assistance. And Jesus goes, and there's this exchange, you know, of, uh, about uh, the woman saying, "I, you know, I need your help. Yes, it's says Jesus, but it's not uh, meat uh, for uh, the dogs to receive, uh, you know, that which is directed to humans. And she's a sharp lady, and she says, yeah, but even the little dogs uh, get the scraps from the master's table. And I think at that point, uh, Jesus' heart, heart melts. Uh, he knows that he that he's made the point that he wants to make, and that is teaching the disciples that everyone who asks of God uh, deserves his help. And so he finally uh, says, Oh, woman, great is thy faith, and he grants the miracle. And, and I th really think that it's a teaching. He has in mind a teaching moment for the apostles because they're going to have to shoulder the responsibilities of the church in the future. Yeah, both in so, terms of the covenant, how important the covenant is, but also of the ability to spread these blessings to those absolutely. who are born in that covenant. So, yeah, yeah. E even, okay, so you're not a member, an official member of the covenant community, but faith always wins. Yeah. And, and that's the message that I take from that is, yeah. is that uh, it, it isn't just a matter of covenants and covenant keeping. Uh, it is also a matter of God's love for each of us and his desire to bless his children when they ask for yes. it, no matter who they are. I've said this many times. Some of the most powerful moments uh, have come with those that uh, you would guess have not been 100% uh, faithful in keeping the commandments, some very deeply spiritual and important uh, lessons have come uh, from interactions with, with, with those. And, and and all of us, you know, are kind of like the prodigal son. We're righteous, but we're sometimes not so righteous. Yeah, back and forth. Anyway, so Jesus is coming back from the west coast of Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon, and uh, he stops, uh, follows the trunk road that, that follows the, uh, you know, the road of the coast, the sea coast comes back, and he's at Caesarea Philippi, this beautiful area that you mentioned, uh, which uh, shows uh, one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River bubbling up from the ground uh, out of a, a uh, cave, or at least what was once a cave, uh, but uh, the, the ceiling or the, the, uh, the top of the cave has since collapsed, and so it, uh, you can tell that it was once a cave, but no, it's from there that the water bubbles up. And uh, Jesus then stops in this beautiful uh, setting 
and says, uh, you know, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter, who is the chief apostle, uh, steps forward and in his role as the almost uniformly uh, uh, true spokesman for the Twelve, says, well, you know, some say you're this person, some say you're that person. Well, but who do you say that I am? Well, thou art the Christ. And then Jesus says, uh, yes, and I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, uh, and in order to appreciate the significance of that, uh, as you stand in front of the, um, you know, the bubbling up of the waters. Yeah, and that kind of mountainside there. Yeah, Jordan River. You realize you're standing on the bedrock foundation uh, for the mountain, the highest mountain in the region, which is Mount Hermon, as you have alluded to. And so I can imagine that what Jesus does is he uses... This moment in front of the bedrock foundation uh, of Mount Hermon, uh, from which the the rain and the snows in the winter trickle down through the many layers of bedrock and then finally reach a point where they bubble up out of the ground, and that's where Jesus is. And I can see him pointing to Peter and saying, Thou art Petros. But upon this Petra, I will build my church. And there are two different words in Greek. There are two different words in Aramaic, two different words in Hebrew, where Jesus is pointing to Peter, and he says, yeah, you're, you're, the, you're the small stone, you're the pebble, if you will. But it's upon this bedrock, the Petra, which you apostles can see plainly, uh, it, upon which I will build my church. So Peter is the, excuse me, the small stone, um, or as as uh, as we learn in the Joseph Smith translation of John chapter one, uh, Peter is the the stone of revelation. He is, he will be an instrument in the hands of God. But it's the revelation that Jesus is the Christ upon which the church is built. And uh, and that, that has been, was an exciting moment for me, uh, I think the first time standing in that area 30 years ago and seeing that something else was going on. And it was prompted, interestingly enough, by the footnote of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where we see uh, noted for us that Jesus is engaging in wordplay. The Greek Petros, which is the name Peter, and the Greek Petra, which is the bedrock. And, and, and Jesus saying in this very uh, subtle but clever way, this wordplay, that yes, you're the, you're the pebble or you're the stone of revelation, Peter, but I'm the bedrock, I'm the rock of Israel. I'm the rock of salvation. And we find that word Petra used that way throughout the scriptures is that Jesus is the rock. So um, I think Jesus goes to 
Caesarea Philippi because he wants to use the natural landscape as a powerful teaching tool. We have the president of the church, who will be the president of the church, Peter, whose name means small stone, or if you prefer the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis, of uh, John chapter 1, Peter is the, is the seer stone of Revelation, but Jesus himself is the bedrock. He's the Petra. And, uh, of course, uh, the apostles are standing there and seeing that what they're facing, what they're looking at, is the bedrock foundation upon which this huge mountain rests. And this mountain, what, 9,200 feet above sea level, and, and the waters of life bubbling up from underneath. But what uh, made it even more uh, impressive to me is to understand that in the Greek world, caves were usually thought of as openings to the underworld. And here Jesus says, uh, you know, nothing is going to prevail against my church. And particularly that person who is associated with the underworld or Hades, that is to say the devil. Uh, Lucifer, he's not going to prevail against the church because I am the bedrock. I'm the living rock. Yeah. So there's the huge cave there, and he's talking about the gates of Hades, basically, yeah. and and uh, and that would have had connotations with the gates of Hades. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and just so because I know some of our uh, our colleagues would like to quibble over different nuances, will uh, uh, appreciate uh, some of this. Uh, you know, it does. It talks about them being in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. So we don't know if they're in the city itself or not. But you can wherever you are, you can see all of these things. Uh, that yeah. you're talking about, and yeah, whether it's Petros or Cephas in Aramaic and the gender endings and all, I mean, there are lots of little ways to play with this, but they all come to that same conclusion that you've given yeah. us. That, and and it, it strikes me because the Savior is um, so good at this. He, he uses the everyday things around him. He'll talk about sowing with people who are, are used to, to farming. He'll talk about, you know, the the ocean and the, and telling the weather when he and he's with fishermen, right? So of course he takes advantage of the place he is, and perhaps even went there specifically to take advantage of that setting, to to use the the rocks, the bedrock, the mountainside, yeah. the cave, the waters of life. I think he chose that setting intentionally because it speaks so powerfully when you are in that that place where he's drawing on the imagery all around you. It, it sinks into your soul. And, and so we're not there when we read it, but hopefully if we can stop and, and, and understand the things you've just taught us, it sinks into our soul a little more deeply as well. Yeah, and there are photographs. I think we probably have some even in the, in the LDS edition yeah. of the King James Bible where you can actually see the bedrock yeah. foundation that Jesus uses as this, uh, as this uh, teaching tool. Uh, you can imagine Jesus using his hand, pointing to the to Peter and saying, uh, Peter, on the one hand, and then using the other hand and pointing to the bedrock foundation, saying, upon this Petra, I will go my church. You are Peter. Yes, you're the pebble. You're the stone of revelation. Uh, uh, but upon this bedrock, which is the testimony that I am the bedrock of the church. I, I I love that image, and it becomes even clearer when you look at the photographs. Yeah. And they are you, you in know, the Bible. You, we do have that. Yeah. You, you made an interesting point. Uh, just the other day, I can't even remember why I was doing this, but I was thinking of some of the images Jesus uses to 
right? describe himself, and then some of the images that uh, the church after uh, he left uh, have have begun to use to describe who he is. He is the Lamb. He is the living water. He's the tree of life. He is the rock or the bedrock. Uh, he describes himself as the stone, or he is described as the stone. He's the good shepherd. Uh, he is the pelican. He's the phoenix. He's the dove. He's the serpent. He's the prince. He's of peace. He's the olive. Uh, in later Christian um, culture, he is portrayed as the dolphin. He's the crown, the Stephanos, that, uh, that is worn by those who run the race and win these athletic events. It just seems to go on and on and on. All of that, as you say, to make the point that the Book of Mormon makes that all things testify of Jesus Christ. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, if, if I can call you Andy in, in this setting, I do in other settings, but uh, thank you so much, my friend. Uh, it's always edifying to talk about the scriptures, and it's always edifying to talk about them with you. And uh, as we've talked, even things that I've already considered or uh, thought about before, and those things that I haven't have come to life uh, for the first time or again for me. And uh, it has. Uh, it drawn me closer to the scriptures, this conversation with you, which then draws me closer to the Savior because that's what the scriptures do. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. And what you have said about personal realization wise uh, goes for me as well. Uh, sometimes I think you you just need somebody to to talk to and bounce ideas off of. And, and uh, this has been a, a real treat for me. So thank you. That, that brings up a good point. We'd urge anyone listening to not just keep this to yourself. Go and share some things with some people because it's in the sharing that uh, you come to understand even more. And it's always good to help other people. So thank you. You're welcome.